What's going on everybody? It's Johnson here and welcome back to Product of a Dream. First things first, I wanted to wish you all a happy new year, happy new decade. Starting off the new year fresh, on the very first episode of the decade, I have the pleasure of speaking with author and lead consultant to Miami-Dade's anti-gang strategy program, Wayne Rollins. We got to talk about his upbringing in Hollis, Queens, famous old friends like Run DMC, and much more. Check it out. All right, guys. So I'm here tonight with a good man, Wayne Rollins. Wayne, how are you doing tonight, my friend? I'm doing amazing, brother. Good, man. How's your week been so far? I know it's only Tuesday, but hey. It feels like it's been about two weeks so oh, far. I know. For all of us, man. So, Wayne, I wanted to bring you in today because you're someone I met at an event recently, and I found you to be a very interesting person, not only from the conversation we had, the brief conversation we had, but from the things that other people told me as well. So if you may... Please tell us, who is Wayne Rollins? Um, I'm a Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, I am the uh, project manager for the uh, Miami-Dade Anti-Violence Initiative. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a father of yeah. seven. Ooh, seven, man. How do you deal with that? <laughs> one by one. Oh. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and where are you from initially when uh originally i'm from new york Hollis, queens got you mm -hmm. and your family um from the islands mostly uh, barbados dominica jamaica right and south carolina there we go now what was it like um what was your upbringing like being mixed with all those different cultures all those different people how would you say that it influenced you to become the person that you are today well, I think, you know, it was interesting. In Hollis, when my parents first moved there, it was mixed between uh, whites and mostly um, West Indians right. that moved from Harlem, you know, to, to Queens. Right. And then white flight took place. Mm -hmm. So then um, it became a predominantly black community. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the third grade, um, I was it was when they started busing okay. in New York. So I was bused from Hollis to Flushing. Mm -hmm. So that was an amazing cultural change because I went from pretty much an all black school, mm -hmm. black and Latino, to almost predominantly all Jewish. Right. You know, and there were other, you know, a few others also, but it was mostly Jewish. Right. So it was a, a big cultural shock, mm -hmm. you know, to be uh, going from Hollis to Flushing on a, on a daily basis. Right. Um, I remember a lot of my classmates, they would come to Miami for the winter break, mm -hmm. you know, and never did I think I was going to be living <laughs> in Miami for the majority of my, my life. Right. Um, but then also 
culturally, it was very rich. It was like every block had a, a band. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up on the same block with uh, DMC, a run DMC, and right. Russell Simmons lived on 194th Street. I lived on 197th Street. Right. And I remember when Russell Simmons was doing his first concert at City College, you know, um, he needed an amplifier. So, you know, we also, me and my brother had a, had a band also. So we, I remember rolling one of our amplifiers down 100th Avenue to 194th Street and give right. it to Russell and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, go back for like one of his first shows. Right. And, you know, and the rest is history, you know, in terms of, you know, Russell Simmons and Def Jam and Run DMC and all right. of that. So, And what was that like, though? Because you're talking about like the beginning stages of when hip hop started to blow up. Like, it's not just kind of like Sugar Hill Gang, but we're talking about Run DMC Hollis Queens here in New York back in the day. Yeah, it was actually, it was, it was, I was in, in New York when Sugar Hill Gang came out with their first, uh -huh. first rap. Right. Um, and then I had moved to Miami to go to the university in Miami. Right. And one of my friends that grew up, I grew up with on 197th Street said, uh, Wayne, did you hear, hear about Daryl? I said, what about Daryl? He's DMC. I was like, what? Because <laughs> Daryl was one of the few people that weren't into music right, when right. we were coming up. Right, you know, right. and everybody else was. My friend Freddie, me, and yeah, I mean, so many other people. Now, when you say Freddie, do you mean Fab Five Freddie? No. Oh, okay. I'm <laughs> no, like, whoa. No. <laughs> There's a lot of things I didn't do my research on before I did this. <laughs> no, no, no. But, um... So, so actually, you know, that whole, um, you know, Def Jam, well, Def Jam started when, when I was in New York, right. but uh, at DMC didn't blow up until after I had moved down to South Florida. So right, it was around right. that same, same time frame, around like 1981. Right. Do you feel like you missed out because you were kind of gone during that period a little bit? Um, that's interesting. Um, I never thought about that. Um, one time... Uh, when DMC came down to uh, Miami to do a record signing, um, uh, a, yeah, I guess a, a record signing mm -hmm. at uh, the Omni in Miami, um, I went, you know, not to get a signature from him, but just to see him. Right. And uh, when I when it got to my turn in line, he was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So it was it was interesting to you know. Um, you know, reconnect with him. Right. I saw him, I think, one more time after that. He came down and did something at Goombay Festival. Right. But, you know, I probably couldn't even get in touch with him now. Yeah, I was just about to ask <laughs> that. because through so many layers, right? Right, because it seems like you guys had, like, a relationship prior to him blowing up. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if he if he saw me or, you know, whatever, I mean, I'm just, the connection would be instant. Right. But, you know, you know how when you get to that level, I mean. Oh, my gosh, things change, people change, everything. So you moved to Miami. What was that like moving from New York to Miami? Well, you know, in New York, before I moved, I tried to get a job inside the record uh, industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I started to realize that the money wasn't being made in being a performer. Okay. The money was behind the scenes. Right. You know, mm -hmm. um, that most record labels at that point were signing people for two or three cents on a dollar. Right. So, and, and they were charging you back mm -hmm. for whatever they did, all promotion, all phone calls, all publicity, everything right. was being charged back so that as a performer, you weren't making anything other than what you were making when you're doing concerts and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And so um, I decided, I said, I want to get into business. So I went and applied for every record label in New York, um, RCA, CBS, Warner Brothers, you name it. I had applied and couldn't get a job because at that time, the industry was trying to move from vinyl records mm -hmm. to cassettes. Got you. And the transition wasn't going well. Mm -hmm. So everybody was cutting back and hiring freezers. So I said, well, if I'm going to break into the business, I'm going to have to... Um, further my education mm -hmm. so there were two schools that I applied for North Texas State and University of Miami both of them were the only schools in the country that had um, the business of music right. majors mm -hmm. you know music merchandising was, the, was, was what it was called back then um, at University of Miami so I was accepted so I came down to University of Miami um, to, to study the business you know of music mm -hmm. That's interesting, man, because, you know, it's funny because you mentioned that there was no money in being a performer back then. But I think a lot of artists can relate now, especially what's going on with uh, some contracts called 360 deals and pretty much how labels are trying to take a piece of every little thing that the artist pretty much makes. And not only that, with advancements as well, right? The label gives you money, but you have to make it back for the label somehow, some way. So it's kind of a thing of like how history is kind of repeating it itself. But I forgot to men I forgot to ask you when you mentioned it, what type of band did you and your brother have? Were you guys rapping and stuff? like that man i did so much kind of music actually i didn't do much rap i did reggae i did um uh r&b um and then when i came down here i even got involved with classical music and baroque uh baroque music renaissance music right um but mostly jazz okay. you know was you know mostly uh, what i was performing at the university of miami are you a big jazz fan not anymore but uh, i used to be <laughs> what do you listen to um, I don't anymore. Not? No, no music? No. So what What kind of has filled the void for you as it pertains to you losing music? Uh, the Quran. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. So did you convert to Muslim or were you raised Muslim? I was raised Christian in a Presbyterian household. Got you. So what made you convert? Uh, 1991. Mm -hmm. And what happened in 91? Um, well, I had picked up the Quran when I was 16 and... I started to read it and it talked about the prophets that I learned about in Bible study, mm -hmm. you know, and then it talked about how Allah was one. And I said, man, that makes sense. Because when people were talking to me about, or when the preachers were talking about God is the Father, He's also the Son, and He's also the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And as a young child, I was like, man, uh, this doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so when I read the Quran, I said, man, this is the truth and for that. And for me, that was it. So I really thought I was Muslim, right. you know, but um, I did not take Shahada. Shahada is the proclamation of faith. Right. When you, you know, um, you proclaim that there's no one worthy of worship except Allah and that Muhammad, uh, peace and blessing be upon him, is the last and final messenger. So, um, uh that I took in 1991 when a brother named um, Abdullah Muslim, who I was working with uh, on a telemarketing job, um, he, uh, he said, uh, well, do you know about the Shahada? I'm like, no. He says, well, you got to take Shahada. I'm like, sure. I mean, you know, because I had considered myself Muslim anyway, right. but I didn't know, you know, the, um, the practices of it. So he kind of showed me the ropes and um, I immediately followed the, the protocol. Right, <laughs> correct. 
Now, you mentioned you were a telemarketer back then when you first started making the trans the transition into becoming a Muslim. Um, professionally, can you kind of guide us through the timeline? Because now you are a strategic planning consultant and you've assisted in the development, implementation, and the revitalization of rural and urban communities nationwide. So how did that get started? <laughs> I don't think we have enough time for that, Johnson, <laughs> but I'll try. Right. Um, you know, you, you're going to probably laugh at this, um, but when I left New York, I wanted to, uh, you know, get a job in the music industry, making at least $17,000 a year. Right. Now, mind you, I was just 20 years old, and um, I'm 60 now, so you, mm -hmm. can, you can imagine 40 years ago, 17,000 is probably about maybe equivalent to maybe 50 or 60,000 now. Mm -hmm. And so for a young man, that was decent money. Right. So um, I started working part-time at uh, MCI, which was a, a long-distance phone company. It was the first like major competitor to AT&T mm -hmm. back then. And then um, I was making much more than 17,000. So I had achieved my, my goal in right. terms of my financial goal. And so um, I left MCI and started to work for another company where I met this brother Abdullah Muslim doing the same thing. It was like another long distance, you know, um, provider. And um, meanwhile, I had uh, got out of the... Um, entertainment business because I was working on a show at that time simultaneously with being a telemarketer I was working on a show called the American Jazz Awards which was like the Grammys for jazz mm -hmm. and it was scheduled to be in Miami we had about a quarter million dollars of advertising we had um, booked the Gusman Center for the Performing Arts it was a, a American Express gold card event and uh, black tie and we couldn't sell any tickets we had all, not all, but a lot of the big stars coming in for this thing, and tickets weren't moving. So in the entertainment business, we have a thing called a drop-dead date. Mm -hmm. So if everything is not in place by a certain date, you Forget cut your losses it. and just drop it. Right. And so that's, you know, that's what I did. And um, I had a, uh, a, 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 no, it was a cousin of mine, my ex-wife, who had a trucking company. He said, Wayne, I'll give you um, $500 a trip twice a week going back and forth to New York, carrying, you know, loads. Mm -hmm. So uh, I said, okay. So uh, he said, well, you gotta go get a tractor trailer license. So I said, okay, no problem. So I went to the CDL school and they said it was gonna be $2,300 to get the license. And I was just broke. I lost everything on the American Jazz Awards. So um, they said, well, go to OIC in Liberty City. So I went to OIC and they said, we'll pay for your training. So I went, and they made me take all these tape tests and everything, and I always scored, you know, the highest levels and the highest scores. Um, but um, I, the main thing was to get in the track trailer. So I went and got the track trailer license, and then when I came back um, to uh, present my uh, driver's license and my completion certificate to OIC, um, they said, um, well, the executive director, he asked me, Wayne, did you ever do any um, bookkeeping? And I said, that's kind of strange that he'd be asking me that. But um, my grandfather, he was one of the first black CPAs in New York. Mm. You know, he kept the books for Marcus Garvey's movement. He was also a, the, uh, the deputy comptroller in the, for Governor Rockefeller. And he taught me about bookkeeping. And I was good at it, but 
I was an entertainer. So right. It was like a conflict. Yeah, because you person. had no interest in it. No interest in it, but I had that skill. Mm -hmm. And so I told them what I just told you. I told, you know, the, uh, the head of OIC at the time. And so um, they wanted me to come on and bring their books up. So I came on. I brought their books up to date, you know, their accounting records up to date. And then um, I left. I never did those trips to New York right. twice a week. But um, I did some local driving and some entertainment consulting. And then about a year later, I went back to OIC to just check and see how things were doing. And now their funding had uh, uh, was being threatened to be cut off because their books had fallen behind again. Mm. And so now they need a full-time bookkeeper, uh, uh, CFO, uh, certified, um, uh, 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 not certified. Uh, Chief financial officer. Chief financial uh -huh. officer, thank you. And um, so I, I came on, and then about six months after that, the executive director got sick. He went in the hospital, and then he resigned. And so now the funding agency, they don't know me from Adam, and they're like, you know, we have no confidence in this organization anymore. So they cut off all funding. And so the people, OIC was based out of um, Philadelphia. So that the leadership from Philadelphia came down, and we had leadership from here, and we had like, you know, the who's who of Black Miami. I mean, it was uh, Georgia Ears, Garth Reeves, um, George Ellis, you know, and, you know, we had a high-powered board, but <laughs> no money. Right. And so they come to me and they say, "Okay, Rollins, you got the job." I'm like, "Got the job, but even no money." <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Oh man, this is crazy," but I said, "Okay, well, you know." I, so I led them and organized a a appeal. And I brought in Kendrick Meek, Carrie Meek, some of the preachers, the leading preachers of some of the, the mega churches here, and we appealed, you know, this this defunding. Right. And so the uh, the workforce board they gave us seventy seven thousand dollars to uh, hire twenty people, train and hire twenty people, pay for our, my salary, pay for a job developer, <laughs> and pay for the office and all this. And that was like a one-year contract. I'm right. like, dang. And you guys have to split this amongst how many people? It's, well, two people okay. because it was just me and a job developer at that point. Because right. everybody else, we couldn't do anything. And it could only last us about three months. Right. So I said, either we got to close the doors or we take it and see what, you know, what we can do. Mm -hmm. So over the next 15 months, we were able to raise $500,000. We were able to take the job placement rate from 22% to over 90%. And we were able to uh, form a partnership with the Miami Heat mm -hmm. called the OIC Miami Heat Entrepreneurial Academy because what happened was more than half of the people that were coming through our doors had criminal backgrounds. Mm. And so if we didn't um, help them to get jobs, we didn't have people to serve. Right. You know, so it became a situation of... Uh, you know, we need to look at entrepreneurship. We need to look at job readiness skills and all of that. So, um, you know, partnering with the Miami Heat, there was a brother by the name of Wally Jones. He was uh, actually used to be on the world championship team with uh, Will Chamberlain and Philadelphia 76ers back in the day. He was uh, working with me to, to train these young men and women. Mm -hmm. um, so they were job ready and for entrepreneurship. So anyway, the Justice Department heard about what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And they, at the same time, they were writing uh, an application to become a weed and seed site with the U.S. Department of Justice, which was basically weed out crime and seed and social and economic programs. So with our 
focus being job training and placement, we became that component of the application. Mm -hmm. So OIC was going to do the job training and placement for this weed and seed strategy. Um, and around what year is this? Now? This is like um, uh, 80, I'm sorry, 96. Got you. Yeah, around 96. So, um, so anyway, um, they asked us to find an executive director, you know, I'll do a search for an executive director. And so we got a few candidates. And then um, a week before the, uh, the deadline for applications, um, I call up uh, the uh, special assistant to the United States attorney who came, later became a federal judge, uh, Patrick White. I said, Patrick, let me tell you why I'm calling. Um, you know, well, first the conversation went, he kind of asked me how things are going with the search. And I said, oh, things are going good. We got you know, about five different good candidates, blah, blah, blah. And I almost started to hang up the phone. I said, Patrick, well, really, let me tell you really why I'm calling. I'm interested in the position. And so he was like, yeah, wow, that's great, blah, 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 blah. And so I didn't make a move. I kind of still inquired and, you know, did some consultation. And the day before the deadline, one of our, um, our uh, advisors, mentors, I told him what I was thinking about doing. He said, Rollins, you're making a good salary. You turn OIC around. You could be comfortable for the rest of your life. And I'm in Liberty City, and he's telling me I could be comfortable for the rest of my life. And no I'm such seeing, thing. <laughs> I'm seeing nine-year-old girls get pregnant. Uh -huh. I'm seeing half the people come through my doors, you know, have criminal records. I'm pe seeing people shooting, you know, getting shot dead, you know, on the street. And you want me to be comfortable for the rest of my life? Right. So I said, well, <laughs> the next day, the last that day to apply, I applied for the job. Uh -huh. And they, they selected me to, to be the executive director of, of the Weed and Seed Strategy. Um, and so... Out of the 300 weed and seeds around the nation, um, Washington said we were the best. So um, in the years four and five, they were flying me all over the country to train, train activists, um, community-based organizations, U.S. attorneys, state attorneys, police departments um, on how to do what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I was only getting paid for my salary as the executive director of weed and seed because it was a full-time position out of a U.S. Department of Justice grant. So I couldn't get paid to be a consultant and for running the weed and seed in Miami. Right. And so um, in, in 2002, I said, well, let me break off and go on my own mm -hmm. as an independent consultant. Right. And so, um, and so that's what I did. You know, I struggled for about a year because, you know, you get used to getting paid on the 15th or the 30th of the month or whatever, right. you know. Right. Um, and as a consultant, it's not like that, you mm -hmm. know, so you have to have enough work to sustain you. And so it was a struggle for about a year or two, but then, you know, since maybe 2003 to now, 2004, you know, we've uh, been successful. Now, you mentioned that you were in Liberty City during that time as well, too, mm -hmm. and you've seen a lot of things. How do you mentally kind of stay motivated? How do you self-motivate yourself when you have this type of surrounding going on around you? Well... You know, my life is about trying to please Allah so that I can enter into paradise on Judgment Day. Mm. That's my motivation. Right. So whatever I do, I'm trying to, you know, please him. Because if I'm not doing that, then what am I doing? Exactly. <laughs> right. Now, in 2004, you wrote a book as well called Planning for Reentry. You co-authored this book. Uh, tell us about what this book is about. And also, this book ended up finding its way into the White House as well. So tell us about that journey. 
Yeah, it's, it, it was really quite interesting is that um, one of my contracts was with the U.S. Attorney's Office for a project that they call Project Safe Neighborhoods. And, you know, having seen so many young men and women have criminal backgrounds and struggle to, um, you know, get jobs and struggle to make it, um, I approached the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and I said, I think, you know, we really ought to be focusing on reentry, you know, um, because returning citizens, they need help, you know, in order to be successful. And so um, it was kind of a hard sell at first because the U.S. Attorney's Office, their main focus is what? prosecuting people and putting them in jail. Right. And I'm trying to tell them, tell them, we need to work on keeping people out of jail. Right. You know, when they come back from prison, that you keep them right. out uh, of prison. So, um, but then they started to realize that it really meant enhancing public safety. If we could help people that are coming back from prison to live crime-free, be successful in living, then they are less likely to commit new crimes. So it enhances public safety when you help people um, that are coming out of uh, prisons and jails. So they agreed with it, and so um, we organized the Southern District of Florida at the 2004 um, South Florida Reentry Summit. Mm -hmm. And so we brought together people from Palm Beach, uh, Broward, Miami, and some of the other surrounding areas, Martin County, um, and to talk about some of the emerging strategies and issues as related to reentry. And we did it, the whole thing very strategically. You know, we have, I have a strategic plan and model that I've developed over the years, and we apl applied that. And um, it became a model that the uh, White House um, used for um, the uh, Office of uh, Drug, uh, the, uh, National, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, I think it is. Um, they use it for their major cities grantees for establishing reentry strategies. So we were engaged in reentry work before anybody was even talking about reentry and returning citizens and all of this. Um, and so that was it. I mean, it, it became uh, um, a, 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 a paradigm shift in uh, the Justice Department and in communities all over the, all over the nation that uh, you know, reentry was actually a way of enhancing public safety and that we ought to be working with uh, returning citizens um, to be successful. Right. So now obviously you're doing all this great work and so your work starts to become noticed by a lot of big names, one of them being former Governor Jeb Bush and he appointed you to be on the ex-offenders task force. Um, how did that come about? What was that like? What was the objective of this program? Well, we wanted to look at the, uh, the barriers, mm -hmm. you know, facing returning citizens, um, the barriers that were um, uh, imposed by the state, um, the other um, collateral sanctions that people were, were experiencing in terms of uh, housing and jobs and um, licensing. That was a big thing because a, uh, a lot of returning citizens, they may have received some training um, in prison for a particular um, occupation or vocation, but then when they got out and tried to get licensed, they said, no, you can't get licensed because of your felony record. So it didn't even make sense. Um, so we looked at, at some of those things, and then we, when we put forward our report, it really 
um, brought to focus in a nonpartisan way um, what needed to be done with reentry. Now, um, at that time that Jeb Bush had uh, called for the governor's um, reentry task force, um, he was in his last year. <laughs> so a lot of what we would propose really didn't move, mm -hmm. um, you know, because he was a lame duck governor at that point. Right. But, um, you know, we did see those things over the years start to, to you know, manifest and, right. and come to fruition. And was there any kind of like, because to me, from what I'm hearing, it seems like you've had this one objective, right, which is pretty much helping people get back on their feet. Mm -hmm. But now if we look into current day politics and you kind of looked at and you kind of look at the right. Right. And I would say there's times where it feels like me being a person of color myself, where the objective is to kind of put as many people in jail to satisfy an agenda. So would you say at this point within yourself, was there kind of like any thoughts of, hmm, should I do this? Should I not do this? Like, do you, did you have to was there a fight within you to kind of like take this position under Jeb Bush? Mm. But at the same time, too, politics were completely different then than they are today. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if this was an easy decision to make. Was there still kind of some back and forth? What was the thought process going into this at that time? Mm. Well, that's a really good question, uh, Johnson. I like maybe um, I didn't really probably. I don't even think I even looked at it that way. Um, it was more about being at the table to be able to affect change. You know, um, so I wasn't a Republican <laughs> right? <laughs> when I accepted that. Um, mm -hmm. I was an independent, right? you know, so it, it really wasn't an issue of um, politics as much as it was at being at the, at, at the table, having a voice at the table. Being, I've always looked at myself as an advocate for the advocates, right? you know, so for people that did not have a voice at the table, try and bring their voice to the table. Right. And speaking about being a voice at the table, you're also the developer and lead consultant for the Miami Data Anti-Gang Strategy as well, too. Uh, when did you realize Miami had a serious problem that revolved around gang violence? Well, we started to look at that in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, we convened the 2008 uh, South Florida Anti-Gang Summit. Mm -hmm. Again, similar to the 2004 reentry summit, it was similar. We brought together Broward, Palm Beach, Miami, Martin, um, Highland, some of the other places, counties around the area, um, to look at the gang, emerging gang problem. And so um, there was a number of different objectives and goals that came out of it. Um, and I think part of it was... Part of the problem was manifested by the Justice Department itself because there was a, um, a project within Project Safe Neighborhoods that was called the Anti-Gang Initiative, if I call, recall correctly. And it started to ask each of the U.S. Attorney's districts to look at their gang problems and start identifying gang members and gangs and all of this. So once you give credibility to a gang, so-called, it kind of, you have to kind of own it, right? Okay, so you say that I'm a, I'm a now, now that you're calling me a gang member, 
Either I have to denounce it or I have to live up to it. Right. So I think it, at that point, it kind of blew up because then if you were to get the money from the if you were the U.S. Attorney's Office and you were to get the money for the anti-gang problem, you had to quantify your gang problem. Right. And so in doing that, now you were labeling, labeling groups and this type of thing. So um, I think it was, it was almost a self-fulfilling process that you know, the Justice Department contributed to, mm -hmm. um, not only in Miami-Dade County, you know, or the Southern District of Florida, but all over, you know, the United States. So I think things at that point started to blow up in terms of, you know, having a, a gang problem, per se. But, you know, even today, I don't really see that we have a gang problem. You have groups that do some things, right. I mean, you know, do illegal things. But I don't think we have like what New York or LA or Chicago has, right. you know, we don't have it like mm -hmm. that here, mm -hmm. but you do have groups exactly. that engage in, right. in some criminal And that's what I found enterprise. interesting too, and even as you mentioned it, do you think that the FBI kind of acknowledges kind of the fact that they may have mislabeled different groups as gangs, which kind of, I guess, leads to having more problems because now you think of it like this, right? Maybe there's a small group coming up and maybe they want to become a gang, but they don't have maybe uh, the leadership or the necessary tools to kind of be about that life per se, right? Now you have the FBI saying, you know what? No, you guys are a gang. So like you're saying, you're either going to denounce it or you're going to live up to it. So do you think the FBI kind of recognizes that they may have contributed to maybe even... Uh, just kind of feeding these gangs and kind of maybe giving them like uh, an ego problem as per se that may have contributed to more violence or drug dealings or killings and things like that. Well, it wasn't so much the FBI. It really came out of the Attorney General's office. Mm -hmm. Alberto Gonzalez right. was the one that uh, started the initiative. And this is the U.S. Attorney General or the Florida Attorney, Attorney General? Attorney General uh, in Washington. Gotcha. Uh -huh. uh, he was over, you know, the whole, the top cop for the nation. Right. Um, so th this initiative was led by him. Um, and so it's kind of hard to, to say, but I agree that once you label a group a gang, then either you live up to it or you denounce it. <laughs> and some people live up to it. I mean, because you, you, you are involved with a group because you want a sense of belonging, you want respect, you know, and all of this. So now... You know, the Justice Department is calling us a gang. Mm -hmm. I guess we must be a gang. It gives right. us some some street credibility, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, and so you got to live up to it. So, um, yeah, I would say that not the FBI, but it was really the the Attorney General. Gotcha. You know that uh, you kind of sparked that that whole uh, right. paradigm shift. Right. Wayne, you've accomplished a lot so far in your career, and I would say you've done a lot in not just Miami, but in Florida, per se. Uh, do you ever think about maybe venturing out to another state and maybe trying to do the same things over there that you were able to accomplish here? Well, I already have. Um, you know, the, like I mentioned earlier, you know, with the Justice Department, hired me as a consultant. Right. And so I think I've been in nearly every major city, and many small cities and towns throughout the United States, from California to New York to Chicago, throughout Florida, um, 
and, and training and, and helping develop strategic plans for these jurisdictions, you know, um, nationwide. So I did a lot of that um, in the past. So um, in terms of physically moving to a different location um, to do something like that, uh, I don't know, maybe. I just came back from Detroit uh, last week. Right. And this, I, it, it's like a gold mine of opportunity over there. I mean, it's looked like a bomb hit it. You know, it's, it's it's a great place with a lot of great history and great people. But I guess when the automotive industry um, kind Crash. of collapsed, the recession, yeah, uh-huh. it it didn't recover. So I mean, I see that that if I could spend some time there, you know, I I think we could make make an impact. Right. You know. Um, but this is flawed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can go to Detroit. When I left there, it's it was hard, 39 man. degrees. Right. And this was, uh, this was on Friday. Right. <laughs> you know, a few days ago. So I don't know, man. I come back here, it was 90 degrees. Right. So now you mentioned possible future plans, but you also say that you've been to many different cities before. Which city gave you the most challenges as it mm. pertains to trying to complete your objective, complete what you were trying to do. Well, see, it's interesting because I would go in for two or three days. I'd develop a strategic plan um, with the groups, and then I'm gone. So it's on them to implement. um, Now, which groups are you meeting? Are you meeting with gangs themselves, or are you meeting with kind of people who have the same initiatives as you do? Yeah, same initiatives as as I do. um, But I find that when you you give voice to people that are involved with groups or mm-hmm. gangs, um, you have a more meaningful strategy. Right. Because how are you going to plan for somebody and you don't have their voice at the table? Just like mm-hmm. me and you, Johnson, we're going we're gonna to plan a baby shower. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I'm like, what do, what do we know about a baby shower? With no babies. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, not without the babies or without the women. I mean, Right, you know, exactly. So, so like it's 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 like one of them type of situations where if you want to plan for someone you got to give voice to that that population mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know because really if you think about it they probably have to answer more than you and me because right. they live in it. And what are some of the things that you've heard from those people within one, the gangs? What one, do, what do they feel like the solutions would be? One of the most impactful responses that I've heard from a young man, he said he was direct filed at 15 years old. Direct file means you being, you're facing adult charges. He was convicted and he was, when I met him, he was 30 and he was about to be released Mm -hmm. from prison. Now he is released. But he said that when I was coming up, my father was nowhere around. My mother was working two jobs, you know, and, um, you know, I had nobody but the streets to raise me. He said that if I had somebody that would just call me once a week for five minutes just to check on me, that would have made a difference. Mm. Just listen. Somebody to listen to him. Somebody to, to be concerned, be emp- have empathy for his situation. He said that would have been it for him. It would have just took five minutes once a week. You know, so if we have a little brother, a little cousin, or uncle or auntie or whoever, that's involved, you know, in 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 the, in in the streets. Check on them, you know, once a week, five minutes. It makes a difference, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that was probably um, one of the most impactful things that I've I've heard. Um, and then I guess more globally, 
is we have to deal with unresolved trauma. You know, um, look at Parkland, right? Parkland shooting last year, um, probably the first shooting they had in years, you know, in Parkland, and probably haven't had as much shooting since. To be honest with you, I think uh, Parkland was rated the number one best city to live in Florida prior to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. But you go to places like Liberty City, Little Haiti, Overtown, well, we're dealing with trauma on a daily basis. Right. Daily basis. We hear sh- if people aren't being murdered, they're being shot or shootings going on, domestic violence in the home, girls being raped. I mean, when we're dealing with this nonstop. So we have all this unresolved trauma that ultimately manifests itself in us becoming the one that inflicts mm-hmm. pain on somebody else because it becomes normal for us mm-hmm. and it's not normal. So one, one brother that we work with in the prisons now, currently, um, he said that when he went to Head Start, pre-K, three years old, he got beat up gang style by other three or four-year-olds. In pre-K. Right. Right in Brownsville, Liberty City area. Mm-hmm. Well, right adjacent to Liberty City area. So, and then he gets home, and what does his mom tell him? Man up. Man up. Be a man. Three years old. And then he gets, he keeps hearing that, keeps exp- exposing the demo- um, uh, trauma, Mom, mother being um, a victim of domestic violence, him hearing that in the house. And then ultimately, once he gets a gun in his, his, his hand, he's a man now, right? Okay, because he's been told to man up, so now he's a man. And he goes and shoots somebody serving a life sentence right now in prison. And it starts back from when he was three years old, from unresolved trauma. So he had trauma from three years old to now, but he, now he's starting to deal with it because we have a, a positive peer leadership group that we do in, in, uh, in the prison. And he, so he's starting to deal with some of that unresolved trauma. That's a long time in the making. Right. And he's, like I said, he's serving a life sentence now. Mm-hmm. So um, I would think those two things are on, on an individual level, just that check up with somebody once a week, five minute call, um, and then, you know, looking at that unresolved trauma, right. you know, that people are experiencing. Um, and that goes for all of us. If you live in any urban area, you know, with this shooting going on and, and, and domestic violence and rapes and bullying in the school and all of that, we're all affected by that. Mm-hmm. You know, you turn on Channel 7 News, it gets to, you know, to the point where, you know, you're going to hear somebody got shot, hurt, robbed, something right. in that 30 minutes of, 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 of you watching. Right. And, and it's gotten to the point where we don't have any feeling anymore. We've, be, we've become numb to it. We've become numb. Right. It becomes normal. And it's not normal. Mm-hmm. Just like we talked about Parkland, number one safe place. Right. You know? And then probably back, still probably number one safe place. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. But they had that one day and the whole world come today. Where's the world when, when, it, when it's happening in Little Haiti and, and mm-hmm. Liberty City and, you know, mm-hmm. Overtown and Florida City, Miami, God. where's the world now? Right. You know, and, and so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, we got to deal with this unresolved trauma. But, you know, we, we look at it also, the history, a lot of this is the manifestation of, you know, um, from slavery, you know, which was like the worst human trafficking that's ever, you know, the world has ever seen. Um, you know, to now, we still enslave some of us, you know. Um, when you talk about those that are incarcerated and 
Uh, now with Amendment 4 passing, you know, people just now getting the right to vote. How do you feel about that, by the way? I was going to ask you about that, too. This is an exciting time in our history. The, the law that was put on the books to prevent people with felonies the right to vote goes back to the Jim Crow era. 150 years ago, with the passage of, uh, well, not the passage, but the um, first the Emancipation Procl Proclamation, and then the, um, uh, uh, what is the, uh, the act that happened during Lincoln's period, uh, at the end of the Civil War, where, where he basic, where basically uh, uh, all those that were um, enslaved were free, they came up with these laws to prevent, um, to suppress the vote. At that time, 150 years ago, half of Florida population were black. Half. And so now you say, well, you are free. What do you think is going to happen at the ballot box? Right. They start <laughs> voting in their own. What's going to happen at the ballot box? So. They said, no, we can't, we can't have this. So they come with all these laws they call the Black Code to suppress the vote. And that, those laws, even though we had the, the, civil, uh, the civil Rights Act, and I believe it was 64, 65, and the Voting Rights Act, around that same time frame, those Jim Crow era laws were still in the books. So... We still didn't have that. So now, with the passage of Amendment 4, you have 840,000 people that are ready to vote right now, and then another 500,000 if their fees and fines are taken care of, or the courts decide that they are going to um, let people vote even with those fees and fines, we can change the whole thing. I mean, the, the Gillum, he lost by 30,000 votes. Uh, Clinton lost to Trump by 100,000 votes. So 840,000, like Desmond Mead, the one who led the whole movement, he said, we can cover the gap. We can cover the gap. I don't, if you want to go to the White House, returning citizens can, can choose the next president because you got to come to Florida if you want to get to the White House. We will choose the next governor, mm -hmm. and we will choose um, all the judges and all the other elected officials. So put everybody on notice, this is a new day. The paradigm has shifted. So now that what people were worrying about 150 years ago, about you know black people having the right to vote, now it's, it's a new game now. Right. It is a new game. Mm -hmm. The whole landscape of Florida can change, but you gotta register to vote. Right. You gotta educate yourself about the voting process. And don't be scared, you contact the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and if you don't know if you have fees or fines, they will look into it for you. They will let you know what your situation is. If you're free and clear, they'll let you know that. If you have fees and fines, they'll let you know that. But you need to contact us on the web at floridarc.org um, or .com. And, you know, they'll be able to help you find out what is your status in terms of, you know, being able to register to vote. And then you need to vote. Come, come election day or early voting, you need to vote. And, and you need to be educated on who to vote because we need to get the judges that are sympathetic towards our issues. We need to have a state attorney that's sympathetic towards our issue. And I think our state attorney here, in, in Catherine, Catherine Fernando Rundle, she is 
leading really, you know, a movement too to um, take care of the fees and fines. Mm-hmm. And, and so people can, well, she's the only one out of the 20 state attorneys in, in the state of Florida that's making a move in that direction. So we appreciate and support, you know, her efforts to, you know, be a vanguard for state attorneys in that, in, in that regard. But we can choose the president of the United States because you can't win the White House unless you win Florida. Right. Now, do you feel like you mentioned all these elected officials, right? And a lot of people don't know that there are so many different people who actually have power to make a change, right? You have the judges, you have the Senate, you have the House. Do you think it's as important right now to win the president? I understand a lot of people do not want Donald Trump to be president anymore. But there's a lot of things that can change if other positions change as well, too. If the House, excuse me, if the House stays blue and if the Senate goes blue again, then that could change a lot, right? So do you feel as if everything has to change even if trump even if trump wins but these things change do you feel like that could make just as much as an impact as trump losing yeah i think the local <clears throat> positions are even more important than right. you know uh, the, the the presidency our day-to-day lives are governed more by you know city officials county officials um judges um state attorney public defender um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's that's uh, a number one. But I think we ne- need to look at every single elected position, right? You know, and and see are people working in- fairly and justly, right? I don't care you're Republican, you're Democrat, Independent. Uh, it doesn't matter to me mm-hmm. uh, what you affiliate with, as much as are you fair and just, right? You know, or are you just doing it for you to satisfy your own, you know, design your own benefit, your own pocket? Right. You know, because I mean? that's really what I see in, in the majority of elected officials. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, w- what's in it for me? Right. But it's it's a trust when you go into this position. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know if you are making money out of being an elected official, then your motivation is corrupt right you know your motivation be should be serving the people that put you there Mm -hmm. you know and that may mean that you can't do what you want you know just to satisfy yourself because you you're you're you possess a trust to take care of the people that you serve right do you feel like this is the most corrupt government that you've seen in your time i guess following politics and that's on any level it could be the highest level, it could be from the executive branch, it could be from uh, smaller levels than that. How do you feel about today's current status of American politics? Well, <laughs> I mean, just, you got, you got to look at it. I mean, we have become also numb to corruption. I think that if uh, Barack Obama would have done any one of the things that we see on a daily basis he would have been um, that the current president you know does you know then you know he would have been he would have been impeached right from day one and they right. wanted to impeach him from day one um, and you know so I, I don't I don't think that there's uh, much integrity mm-hmm. left in, um, in 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 most um, elected positions I, for the same reason that I mentioned that, you know, my feeling is 
that if you're going to run for office, it doesn't come from you. You have a group of people, political action committee or whatever group, that say, we want to run somebody for this position. And then we look, say, who is the person that's best qualified for that position? Mm -hmm. And then we approach that person and say, you know, we've, we've come together, we looked at you, we vetted you, and we think that you're the best for this position, we want you to run. And that person probably should be like the person that's like, mm, I don't think I really want to do this, you know, because they, they understand the tremendous responsibility and trust that goes along with it. But they do it because the people have asked them to do it, mm -hmm. and they honor that trust, as opposed to me saying to you, I want to be your, your elected official. Why? Why do you want to be my elected official? Mm -hmm. Mayor Dowd in uh, Miami Beach, I was listening to NPR many years ago, and he said that Abe Holtz, who was a, you know, a very wealthy um, uh, advertising magnet in, on Miami Beach, had a mansion, has a mansion, or, I mean, he may have passed, I don't know, but he said that uh, Abe, uh, Abe Holtz invited the mayor to his house. And Abe Holtz said, here's $10,000. I want to hire you as a consultant. He says, okay. So what do you want me to do? I want my son on the uh, zoning board. So he took the money and he said, from that moment on, he was corrupted. Hmm. He was corrupted. And he went, wound up going to federal prison. Mm -hmm. For, for public corruption. So it's very difficult for elected officials once, first of all, if you get into it for the wrong reason, that's one thing. And then once you get into it, it's very intoxicating. People hold you up to a, a pedestal. You, um, uh, you get to hob, hobnob now with you know, all the, the, the people that you've kind of idolized, I suppose. Um, so if you're not very well grounded and humble, it's going to be very hard for you to make it in politics, mm -hmm. you know. And part of it is people. We, you know, the honorable, <laughs> you know, we hold people up, the honorable, and give them that title. And come on, Johnson, they just like me and you, man. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, the bottom line. Right. And you see it all the time, all the, all the corruption, you know, that, that happens and the behavior that you see, um, and then the, the money that it takes, you know, to run for, for office. Millions. You know, and so, you know, if you're a person of modest means, and now, you know, people are throwing money at you to, you know, your campaign fund. It might influence you to do some things. And then you, you're gonna owe them. Right. You know, if that's, the, if you're not very well, well grounded. Right. So the whole system is corrupt. Right. From top to bottom, and you know, I, I'm, I, I, I don't want to, you know, talk bad about anybody, mm -hmm. but you know, we see things happening now that I've never seen in my lifetime. Right. You know, um, in terms of particularly at the, at the highest office of the land. Mm -hmm. Now, Wayne, you've accomplished a lot, as I've mentioned before. What's the end goal for you? Do you plan on running for public office? I'm not planning on it, but some people trying to push me into it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I want to. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that. Um, you know, for the for the many reasons that I just just described. Um, you know, but 
again, if it is a matter of the people saying that, you know, we want you to do this, um, then I would probably do it. Um, and we do have people saying that. But it's a tough decision on yourself and your family. And right now I have a lot of work, right. you know, to do. So to, to run a campaign is, is very, very time, time consuming. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know, there's, there's that buzz amongst some people, you know, that are, uh, you know, asking me to, to pursue that, that, right. that direction. To entertain the thought. Wayne, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight. This has been so insightful to hear some things I've never heard before and some things I've known. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to be wondering how to contact you. So if you please could maybe give people like an email or even if you have some form of social media, how can people reach you? Yeah, um, WayneRollins.com, you know, is uh, my website. My email is Wayne at WayneRollins.com. And my personal cell is 305-776-8566. I take all calls. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Wayne, for joining us. And I hope we get to speak again sometime soon, brother. Hey, the pleasure is all mine, Johnson. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Be sure to subscribe to Product of a Dream on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to follow Miami's Not America on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time, I'm Johnson Francois, and this is Product of a Dream. <laughs>